It comes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you can grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger strewn around a crowd. It's a dream that you want to be real. Passing over the songs. your body like you channel it that's like a real thing right it, it, it grounding something with that yeah. you heard about grounding i i've heard some things <laughs> tell me more <laughs> i mean just apparently like being barefoot on the ground right. is, is like i can't really tell you any more than that it's important i did meet a, a <laughs> it makes sense though i think you take a cold shower <laughs> I did one time meet this body worker in LA that would stick their thumb in the ground for a while, like to really get like <laughs> seriously, seriously? get down in the ground, and they would stick their thumb in the ground to you know connect with the the, the frequency, the worms, and the I, I don't know exactly mycelium. what they were doing, but it's, they really swore by it. Swore by it, huh? Yeah. Interesting. We're already on the shores, so we might as well just cheers. Here we go. All right. Yeah, welcome to the shores. Cheers. Cheers. To the shores. Thanks for having me. So today we got my good friend Andy Davis with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And my very recent friend, Andy Davis. (laughs) I didn't mean to leave you out of that necessarily. It's okay. okay. I'll I'll, I'll just watch. Andy and I have known each other for 23 years. That's a long time. Is it really that much? I mean, I got, I got to Belmont 99. in 2000. 2000, yeah. So that would be 23 years. Yeah, so we went to Belmont University together mm-hmm. in Nashville, Tennessee. Belmont. Where, yeah, how do, you, how do you feel about Belmont these days? <laughs> on the record? Um, <laughs> on, on, we are on the record, yeah. I mean, I will say that so many people that we went to school with are still around Nashville and still around the music industry, you know? And yeah. I think those relationships were... Something that you couldn't get from somewhere else, you know. I, I didn't really mm. study that much. <laughs> or, <laughs> I thought you were going to say like a subject. Like I didn't really study music. Well, or, I mean, you I'll, just stopped at study. <laughs> I didn't really study. No, I mean, I do remember the main reason I went to Belmont was because they had a recording studio, and I was obsessed at that point with wanting to be in the studio recording, and I. Um, but then I did have these moments where I was taking these very specific classes for the recording, you know, studio kind of tracked or whatever. And you had to take a test where you were wrapping cables correctly. Over yeah. under, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, this is expensive for that. <laughs> yeah. My, my cousin's a radiologist. I don't know if this is the classes he took, but I do kind of wish that I had maybe double majored in communications or psychology or something just mm. to sort of ex- round out my not the experiences I had. Plus, I think I was so interested in the writing music and the recording and stuff that when I got into like the, um, you know, production or I'm sorry, the publishing or record label operations, those kind of mm-hmm. business classes that I was really struggling to stay interested but now i wish i would have really paid attention more in those but yeah what was your major it was called music business so okay, this goes gotcha. like business basic business degree with a lot of these specialized classes in music industry stuff yeah i feel like in general of those years i left about 80 percent of the value that was being offered just on the table yeah i mean maybe that's the way all kids do yeah what does that mean? What makes you think you left like 80% of the value? Oh, I got the dogs outside. Uh-oh. <laughs> Who let the dogs? 
Did you feel that way? Did you feel like you left a lot of the value, or was it? I mean, of... I I left. Um, <coughs> I should have been a, a little more um, eager to find the value. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I think I was more interested in kind of just doing what. I, I mean, I don't know. I'll be honest. I I know that. It was a private school and everything, but for a lot of kids, I think it's just a place to kind of go grow up. It feels like, mm. you know, you're it's the first time you're away from your parents, and you're kind of just, it's almost like... Also, when I was a kid, we went... I grew up in church and grew up um, going to, like, church camps, mm. and a lot of the church camps we went to were at Christian universities, mm. um, and so I felt like I was kind of getting to go to camp. Oh, really? For, That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> for a while, for just, like, in a, over an extended period of time, it was like, this is going to be just, like... I don't know some yeah. kind of camp, but we're never gonna have to go home. <laughs> yeah, was that was that weird for you, or is it was it kind of like a different experience than than that whenever you got there? Or how, how was that? I mean, I don't know. I, I met a lot of people that were just as naive as I was, so I think I felt pretty um, in good company, you know. And a lot of our, um, a lot of the friends. I mean, we had a lot of similar friends, but we also had some sort of different groups. And I, I feel like there was a lot of these. Um, I don't know. There's definitely a lot of like church kids that came from small towns that w- that gravitated towards Belmont, mm-hmm. and especially a lot of them that um, you know grew up singing in church with their families and things like that. So it was a, it was quite it was a, definitely a focused a small kind of cross section of people. At least when we were there, and it's expanded now. I feel like it's really huge and a lot more diverse. Thinking about <clears throat> you describing it as summer camp, it it really did feel that way. But I think. <clears throat> Also, it was like we were talking about this a bit before the podcast over dinner that there was like a really unique thing that happened in that when my parents drove me to Belmont, they like sent me to the dorm and then they left. And there was no way to talk to me unless I happened to be in the dorm room and I answered the landline. Right. Right, And so we really were sort of on our own cut off without communication, like you would be at a summer camp. Right. But I don't think anyone has that experience anymore because mm-hmm. everyone's so plugged in. Right. You don't like, like I remember showing up to the quad in the year 2000 and you're looking around kind of like you said, there's all these other naive kids and we're all wide eyed and just like, what are we doing here? And <laughs> I guess let's talk and make friends and figure this out or whatever. But I feel, I think now with social media and the constant connectivity, you're never really anywhere new. Because you always have this anchor back into whatever other relationship, whatever other person you would like to mm. yeah. pull up. And I like thinking about that as you were saying that, <clears throat> I felt kind of sad that that's gone and never coming back. Right. Without like some like severe rules, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I remember we had a one landline phone in our. <clears throat> dorm room and a lot of times my mom would call trying to find me and my my roommate who was just like do you remember john burt mm-hmm. you know like ended up being like a president of a fraternity and just like a very like um charismatic guy who would call and talk to her for a while <laughs> just when she would try to call in because yeah it was just sort of like you know i wasn't calling home so she would try to get intel from him yeah <laughs> that's funny but i agree it's almost like our our reality i mean i know no one's ever used the term virtual reality, but that we get to choose our reality based on what we see through the phone these mm-hmm. days, you know, mm-hmm. and that doesn't have to change no matter where you are. You know, whether you're traveling, you can sort of still be plugged into your channel right. of reality. <clears throat> and it's a little, yeah, it's it's kind of concerning because 
that reality, I think, starts taking over your overall reality. Mm. Right. Yeah, we definitely like interacted with the world in a completely different way. Because that was something like when my dad would come into town, he'd go to Metro Espresso Bar, where I would always be, is a coffee shop, and he, that's where he would find me. It's like he had no other way to get a hold of me than to, mm. you know, to come find you, come find me, right. or you know, call the house like you're saying. Yeah, and I don't even have people call Metro <laughs> to ask for me because that's where I always was, you know. So there was this way you could kind of escape a little bit yeah. away from that. Mm. That doesn't seem like the case now. Like you know, can't really. Well, now it seems like we're constantly escaping from every single situation we're ever in. It's like oh, interesting. if you're in a line at the DMV local store, yeah. convenience store, or whatever, or just mm-hmm. at the grocery store, it's like you just flip out your phone, plug back into the Instagram feed or the Twitter feed or the whatever mm. you know TikTok, and you're. You're in your personalized little home. Yeah, you don't have to sit in those awkward silences right, anymore. Right, right. <clears throat> Which I think is where a lot of good imagining happens. But mm. if you're sort of habitually... I just sometimes grab my phone and habitually just like I'm like doing, uh, you know, autonomous motions. Where I'm yeah. like, I don't even... It could be off right now. And I would be <laughs> clicking on the same spots. I uh, was uh, actually... You sent me this, speaking of these moments where we flip open our phone, this Instagram reel of this conductor talking about moments of silence and how important they are. He talks about silence having a texture and a personality of its own. And every time he writes a rest in a piece of music, he's like, I conduct the orchestra to play that rest like a piece of music. Mm. You aren't just sitting waiting for your next note. That rest is to be played. Mm. And it's, I think that's really important, and we kind of lost touch with that. You you made a really interesting observation, Andy, about the the sort of like uh, I can't remember the word you used the um, sort of eureka moments or um, getting your mind blown over and over getting again. getting your mind blown over <laughs> and over like that's what the algorithms are doing just right. like constantly uh, eureka moments. You used a different word. What was it? I can't remember. Just like these dopamine hits, I yeah. guess. But I, I think I was talking about how especially in the reels and TikTok kind of thing, it's like taking all these peak moments of content and making them happen right after each other. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't get to sort of experience the full cycle of buildup of internalizing and sort of fully metabolizing or whatever the term is, ingesting that sort of thing because it's like peak moment after peak moment after peak moment. And, mm-hmm. and it's hard to kind of really, you, you kind of numb out after a while. Well, not only that, I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened with social media that I didn't exactly see coming is it's being used as a source of education. Mm-hmm. Like I was really worried about my kids being on social media, mostly worried that they were going to like that my girls were going to develop image issues and that my son was going to be watching porn. And like that, that was the box because I still have an old school idea of what the internet is for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but every time I check in with them, it's like, I check in with my youngest daughter. She's on TikTok or whatever. I'm like, hey, what are you watching? And she's like, oh, I'm learning how to make slime out of household ingredients. Right. Can we do that? And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> um, but with that constant sort of um, eureka hit of like, I'm learning. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Wow. With no rest, none of that gets assimilated. Mm. Yeah. Like you need, for example, you need to sleep every day. And part of the reason you need to sleep is because your your brain basically needs to go into like 
overdrive processing, categorizing, figuring out what are we doing with this information, moving stuff into like long-term memory, moving stuff into muscle memory, moving stuff into like making your understanding of that whole because information isn't just cerebral. Hmm. It has to move into your body for lack of a better word. And we're not getting a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I think for even with my kids where we'll have them be off devices and they'll say I'm bored and it's like well that's good that's kind of where you, your creativity happens and mm-hmm. I'll say and they're like roll their eyes or whatever and then sooner or later like it takes 15 20 minutes and then they're off doing something that's you know creative or, or yeah. something that's different so there's something about even the creative process is something I'm sure all you guys know is, is there's that part where you kind of have to struggle and be bored and be frustrated and not have those outlets that you could just step away from and and feed that it's like you kind of have to have that it's it's the same it's, it's interesting it's kind of almost a western specifically western but more it's becoming more global but you see that with food you see that with exercise uh like we have to make time and space for these things where before you know you had to you know walk to wherever you were working or you had to uh, you didn't eat three full meals a day you know you might eat one good meal or two good meals or something like that but now we have to have intermittent fasting. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. a thing you do. It's not like, it's not something that it's a thing happens that, to you. It's a thing that has a name. <laughs> yeah, there's a name it's to a, it. Yeah. Where like, actually, you didn't have to have it. It didn't have to have a name when you didn't have a choice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or, you know, not having screen time. It's something like, well, why do you do those things? It's because there's something that's biological and that we need mm-hmm. and that we actually have to be more intentional about. So it definitely seems like there's more intentionality required of us to meet some of a more basic biological um, biological needs I mean even reproduction like we were talking about uh, people are waiting longer in life to to have kids and and families and stuff like that mm-hmm. but it's almost like you have to make space for it now right. rather than that's something that you did and right. some of that's good it's like you know contraceptives came into the picture and so people were able to choose and uh, you know, when that was to happen and that kind of stuff. And that was good too. But how long does that also push that process further and further into the future where you don't have to like encounter that in a way that's, that's interesting. It's, you had to make space for it pre contraceptives, but now it's a cognitive choice to make space for it Mm. as opposed to a response to a primal Mm. urge. It's like, you were going to have sex and the consequence of that was going to be a baby. Hmm. And now you're going to have sex, but the consequence is not baby. Mm-hmm. So you have to make a choice yeah. to step into that rather than, yeah, we pulled all the plugs or you hear, you hear people say that mm-hmm. we're, we're, oh, we're trying pull now. the goalie, pull the goalie. There <laughs> <Yeah. you> go. <laughs> plugs, pull goalie. goalie. <laughs> pulled all the plugs. <laughs> I never heard that. Yeah. I mean, I think going back to what we were saying about the, um, you know, you're, everyone's so addicted to immediate gratification. I think that it requires when it goes to well, going back to the creative process and that kind of um, how it relates to everything. I, I kind of feel like the creative process is you kind of have to have enough time to drop into it mm-hmm. and to kind of it's like meditation in a way. You can't you suddenly be the most relaxed you can be in only 10 seconds right or you know it takes kind of like this long a little bit of a slow descent into coming from i don't really know the science well enough to like talk about like beta waves versus alpha waves and theta waves or whatever but i do know that it's like when you're on coffee brain and you're on like million thoughts in a row brain that's like 
it's almost like static on the TV, you know, like the beta. I think that's beta waves. But and then as you drop down into more of a <clears throat> flow state, the waves supposedly get more congruent and it starts mm-hmm. kind of flowing together. And then as you get deeper into the theta and delta, then you're really everything's cohesively on the same wavelength mm-hmm. in your body, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's from what I understand, or that's my experience of flow and and the creative process is. I'm the most relaxed when I'm really deeply into it, but it takes a few things. Even if you go into a set of you're playing music, like the first couple songs, you got nerves going, and then you sort of drop into it at song two or three or four, you know. And I, I think there's a a level of like d- descending away from all the distractions and finally kind of like centering and grounding. I mean, you know, I think it's related to taking your shoes off. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> I, I want to respond to that, but it just occurred to me we haven't really properly introduced you. Oh, <laughs> he's Andy. And I think it's important. <laughs> yeah. So you are Andy Davis. Oh, okay. Online dot com. <laughs> do you still have that domain name? I do actually. Okay. <laughs> so Andy is. We're going to get into some web history. We could. <laughs> Andy's a good longtime friend. He is a wonderful singer songwriter. I wanted to have you on the podcast <laughs> um, because you are an incredibly creative, incredibly caring, and gentle and curious person. And I just had a feeling that our conversation would be exactly as it's going right now. I appreciate that. Um, unrelated. You also have one of the best voices I've ever heard. <laughs> so everyone should go listen to your music. Wow. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be. Uh, I don't know if my honest. talking voice is really um, in the same. It's a very different than my singing voice. So hopefully, I'll. It's very melodious <laughs> talking. I don't know. You could sing, respond if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could. I appreciate um, it. But I, there really is something to that that idea of t- it taking time to really drop into something, just like it takes time to get to know a person. Mm-hmm. And we are constantly confronted with these clips. You were making the point earlier that you might have like a two-hour piece of content that's very good and deep and insightful. And what do we do? We cut it into 15-second clips and we just hammer you with them. But there are things, you know, like a song, for example. Like you're never going to hear a song by listening to clips of it. Just like you're never going to get the picture of what happens in a book by reading the front and back cover Mm -hmm. or you're not going to understand a movie by watching the trailer. These things take time. You have to sit and give your attention to them. And when they're done well, the payoff is incredible. But I wonder if we've kind of forgotten that a little bit that, yeah, it takes time to drop into something and you've got to have patience and discipline and intent whether it's sitting and listening to a show or performing a show mm-hmm. um, or taking the time to sit and read a book, like just like there's stuff that you can't get from the trailer that you can get from the movie, there's stuff that you can't get from the movie that you can get from the book, mm-hmm. you know? I, I think, um, well, this connects a little, I, I may be jumping ahead here, but this is one thing that I feel like AI is not good at yet, which is pacing. You know, because <clears throat> I think our 
what do they call it? Like the attention economy, you know, like Mm -hmm. the, the social media is part of the attention economy and it's meant to keep your attention and they can only monetize their platform if you are watching it and if people are stuck on it, you know, and the method to doing that is to keep hitting you with peak moments. But you people have to really intentionally want to go sit in a quiet place for two hours and hear somebody sing songs or, um, you know, meditate or, or make these choices to do something that's a slower pace, even just reading a book, you know, you have to be interested less in what the information is in the book and more about just the journey of the pacing of that author that they're going to take you on. You know, it's like, especially as with, you know, chat GPT, you can just say, summarize the contents of this book. I mean, if you're just looking for the bullet points of what the books are about, then AI is going to be able to do that easy and help you skip to the point of these skip to the, you know, main points and Mm -hmm. sort of take, even though you may not be able to really ingest and assimilate those like you're saying, but still you can at least start from a place of knowing what you're supposed to be picking up for the book. It's like ultimate cliff notes. Mm -hmm. And, but I think that in terms of the ability to take people on a journey and to hold their attention and sort of guide their attention. And, uh, you know, I think that's what, I mean, you, I know you do this too, as a musician, it's like you're taking people on a journey in time through your musical piece and they're and you're ho- you're trying to promise that they're not going to get bored but you're not going to rush them through it out of you know i think that's what social media has become is that there's a mad rush to keep your attention as opposed to a lot of content that's meant to sort of help you relax and help you that's a really interesting point about pacing with ai <clears throat> like i have a ton of questions about ai and whether or not some things are possible and pacing seems like a good one. I hadn't thought about that before. And I wonder if it's possible for AI to do pacing properly because pacing is entirely contextual. Like there might be a pacing to the way that an author writes a novel, but the way that you pace your set when you're playing a show is has 100% to do with the room you're in and the people that are in that room. There isn't a formula there. It's sure. like Even from song to song and night to night. Yeah. Like if I have one song that starts with a finger picking thing and I know the crowd needs to like calm and center and focus, I might just start with like plucking one string for a few beats, Mm -hmm. you know, I've never played it that way before, but something in me feels like the room needs this and then go into the thing. I I don't know in the absence of, I guess like the room being rigged with cameras and mics and the AI being able to pick up on the intricacies and nuances of everybody's every move in sound that AI could do that. Right. And then I think there's also something beyond the visual and audio input that I'm getting that's causing me to make the changes that I'm making when I'm playing a show. It's something more ethereal. Yeah. It's like feeling what hum- is reading. It's this human connection of yeah. like where, what's everybody thinking and are we flowing together? There's and- like pheromones involved in it. You know, it's like, yeah. how do you, how do you pull all the inputs that a human can gather into an AI yeah. on the spot? I think this is one thing that I'm thankful that I, you know, as much as a church upbringing can be problematic, I think that one thing I'm thankful for is being in some a lot of situations as a musician where the point of the moment was to get people all on the same page, hmm. you know, like emotionally hmm. and to kind of create these moments where people are all on the same page, emotional page, you know? And I think that it's a skill that you 
kind of developed from just facilitating group experiences like that, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that, um, that is a lot more of a, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure how AI will tackle that. Maybe one day it'll be somehow, you know, a avatar or a hologram that can pop up and do this same type of thing. But it's those moments of silence that are like intentional moments of silence, intentional moments of just like when to re-engage, how long you're supposed to be kind of waiting, you know, like those are important and and they're, you kind of have to be really in the moment with a real kind of Hawkeye for what's happening in the moment to know when the right time is to make those changes. Right. You know? See, I'd probably push back on that is I think AI will be able to do that. Really? And, uh, to a very convincing degree. Hmm. However, that's the important point. Mm-hmm. And however, whatever some, so people get so used to AI being able to do that, that when somebody who does that in a relational way, it actually blows, it kind of blows their mind because you, you're experiencing it through somebody who you see as more fallible mm. and somehow that, that there's a connection that's made in that, in that more relational aspect, but it's human to human. But I do believe AI will be able to replicate to a high degree Time, those yeah. situations. Mm. And you know, that, that most people will be able to have that experience, mm-hmm. but I think there's a human experience that will not be able to rep. So I kind of agree with you and also disagree with you. It's just yeah. like if you and I were, if us three were sitting here and you're being interviewed and what if Matt and I were just chat GPTs or AI doing this with you, it'd be a lot different experience for you, even though they might be, you might be, we might, it might be replicating us to mm. the T or something like mm. that. So, Yeah. I think that AI will be able to replicate experiences. Mm-hmm. I don't think that AI will be able to create experiences. Hmm. And the distinction I make there is that <clears throat> the Turing test is like the test of whether or not AI is AI. So can I talk to it and not know whether it's another human or an AI? And then you can put a bunch of layers in between that. So it's like, can I text it and be convinced that it's another human? Can I talk to it on the phone and hear audio and can be convinced, you know, and then there's all kinds of like extrapolations into embodiment, you know, that gets very black mirror. But, um, I think that the thing that separates AI from something like consciousness is consciousness can go beyond what is recognizable Mm -hmm. and create something new. And I think my intuition says that that's reserved for humans. I don't know that we can replicate yeah. that. What, a, what you about can tell movies, any... though? Because like movies aren't real, but you're experiencing it as if it is real. And... Oh, that's a perfect segue. Yeah. So, so okay. yeah. So, could AI replicate a movie mm-hmm. that you could watch and you wouldn't Suspension know? Belief, yeah. You wouldn't know whether or not AI made it or a person made it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Right. And then the follow-on question to me, because there's, uh, you know, AI, it's really exploded over the last what, totally. three months. So there's ChatGPT, <laughs> yeah. but then like, have you seen, there's these programs where you can type in a, pr- a prompt and it will compose and then record a song and give you a track? I haven't played with it, but yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with those. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my thought is that it, it is just very good at anything formulaic. You know, I, I think that as I, you know... 
when you, I feel like people who want to get into movies learn the formula for writing movies. Mm-hmm. You know, or there is a formula to the human attention span. It's like that, you know, uh, golden ratio thing, or you know, it's like whatever these these these, you know, the climax and the second act and the climax here. There's all these shapes that are that are part of the human attention span. It's like when you write a song, you you sing a line. You sing another line that rhymes with it, and then the third one needs to be a surprise. You know, like these are like kind of, I think, built-in formulas that chat or AI is very quick to pick up on. And uh, you know, when you try to write a song, like we could make a I, Chat GPT write us a lyric real fast, mm-hmm. and it will nail the the formula. Right. But I think that it, um, and I do think that for a lot of people, they've become so. And I would say a lot of people aren't even as um, concerned. Entertainment is entertainment, and if it's formulaic, it doesn't matter. You know, as long as if it gives them what they're going for, a lot of people, I think, um, interface with entertainment on a very, a lot less engaged emotional level than I do or we do as creators. <laughs> you know, but I think that sometimes people people will not really care if AI has written the movie or not if it sort of does the things that movies normally do. But I guess that I, for me as a as a creator, I'm, I start thinking like, okay. If if anything formulaic is going to be easy to achieve with AI, then it may, it inspires me to try and do things that are surprisingly human and sort of like you know something that um, can't can, is sort of undeniably human. Hmm. You know, details that are not formulaic or kind of go in directions that are not formulaic. To I think that's where I'm inspired to go. It, you know, honestly, I, I you know I I attempted. Um, to, uh, and I've been, I've had a few like songs that got used in TV shows and stuff like that, you know, but a lot of that type of, um, that type of writing is, is kind of like ad campaign writing or it's writing for, uh, towards a formula or to achieve a certain thing or, or to be background music in a scene or like wallpaper to help kind of convey an emotional moment for the narrative or whatever that narrative is. But I do think, like you're saying, these app these apps that make AI music are going to be so good at just making any. If you, if all you're looking for is background music, then definitely use AI. Like, what? Why sort of ask a human to make something that's going to be so in the background that it's not? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think for when it comes to creative personal expression and creativity and the, per, you know, the work that you do, that's your personal work or your passion projects and your personal expression of your life, you know, don't feel, um, I don't think people should feel, um, limited by the formulas, like the formulaic sort of, uh, approach to those things as much. I mean, I, I do think you want to keep people's attention span if it's a good piece of work, mm-hmm. but I think you don't have to, Try and I don't know. Do it the way. If you think it's fun, do it yourself. Don't don't try to use the AI to get there. You know. So we were like really close, 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 close to the core of my question. Uh-huh. Oh, let's get close. Oh, let's get close. <laughs> it reminded me of Homestar Runner. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, so I, I, while we were in college, I spent a summer living in Minneapolis and working at this music studio where I ended up. Spending most of my time actually editing music videos for Prince. Yes. <laughs> Did I never tell you about this? No. no. He and I were close, and uh, he sent me out to 
it wasn't Prince. He <laughs> sent me out to L.A., the owner of this studio, to go to this film conference. And I attended this lecture. And I forget the man's name now, but he was talking about script writing. Mm. And he said, if you're going to write a script, the first thing you have to do is choose a genre. Mm-hmm. And there's well-established established genres. Sure. You have to know what the genre is. Second thing is you have to understand the rules of the genre. Mm-hmm. And you have to write to the rules of the genre. Right. And his point was, if you don't do that, people won't have any idea what they're looking at. And it won't make sense to them and they'll turn away. You have to give them something familiar sure. so that they can enter in. But then he was like, but that's not enough. Because if you just write in a genre and obey the rules of the genre, they'll be bored. They've seen it before, Mm -hmm. right? Some details may be different, but why am I watching this? So he's like, third rule is you have to subvert the genre. At some point, you have to break the rules. And that's the sort of like creative addition to the formula that you're talking about. But I don't think that you can say, well, subverting the genre or breaking the rules of the genre is a part of the formula. That's part of the Mm anti-formula. And I think there has to be an anti-formula Otherwise, it does just sound like elevator music at some point. Mm-hmm. You just hear the formula. You don't hear the content anymore. So I, you need that. Yeah. I, and I think that's the uniquely human capacity to be able to break the rules in ways that don't become part of the formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think some of that formula is probably like, it's kind of like corporate people giving creatives direction. Mm. You know, it's like, here's what's been working. Horror films are big internationally, and here's the horror um, formula, you right. know, or a monster in a house, or, you know, I'm not sure if it's... I think some of the names in that that come to mind is, like, Robert McKee or, like, um, Save the Cat. Like, some of these books that are, like, you know, in the screenwriting world, like, these are the... Um, the archetypal stories that are being told right now. And if right. you want to be successful, you have to choose your lane, mm. you know, but I think that, you know, and I think it's true. And there's a reason that those forms have stuck around for a long time. But I think a lot of times, I guess maybe what I'm pushing back against and sometimes is like that corporate sort of person saying, well, here's what works. Can you just do it, but do it differently, mm. do it, but do, make it better. Do it. Give us something we've seen, but make it some make it new. Mm-hmm. You know, and it feels a little bit like um, I don't know. I well, it's like a risky question. Yeah, and I think the reason that most companies, if they're hiring somebody to do something, they want something as close to the formula as possible because they want to minimize the risk. Exactly. Because to the extent that you go beyond, that's all risk for them. Exactly. Yeah. And it might be, and the upside of that risk could be massive. Mm. You know, it could be a. a blowout success like garden state kind of reminds me of that mm-hmm. you remember when that movie came out oh, yeah. not only was the movie a blowout success but the soundtrack itself which was like you know when you think about it now it's the most down the line millennial soundtrack that there could be but at the time all of that was underground stuff yeah <clears throat> i feel like i'm talking a lot right now but what it reminds me of uh, one time i there was an engineer that i worked with a long time ago a guy named richie biggs and i just remember this one conversation where he's like you know, there's like the ma- a matrix of four quadrants, and it's like um, on the on the top and bottom. I guess the x-axis. It's like um, stuff people are familiar with, and stuff people are not familiar familiar with. And then on the left and right uh, y-axis, it's like do they like it or not? Do they like it or hate it? You know what I mean? So you mm-hmm. basically are trying. It's really risky to get into that quadrant where it's like never heard anything like this and we like it. Like if you're trying to make something that's very different, 
it's it's a lot more rare that someone's going to like it right. as opposed to being in the quadrant where it's like, we've heard stuff like this before and we already like it. So let's just do more of the same, mm-hmm. you know, if you can, but if you're in that, it's all, it's risky to be, cause you could be like, never heard of this and I don't like it, which is a double whammy of yeah. like, you know, trash this. Well, the amazing thing is when somebody can create a piece of art that coaxes you into that space by way of the familiar like I give you something familiar and you like it mm-hmm. and then I kind of fuck with it a bit and you're like, whoa, wait, but I'm still with you. Right. And then the the masterful artist, whether it's a songwriter or a movie director, screenwriter or whatever, can actually pull you into the place where you're like, I never thought I would have liked this. Mm-hmm. You know, I have this, <laughs> I have this experience um, specifically with women and the John Wick movie series <laughs> have you seen john wick i've seen one of them yeah. okay uh then the first one the, the most recent one just came out during south by southwest recently or they did a screening of the new did a one. screening of yeah. that. that makes sense i think it hits theaters next week mm-hmm. I, i'm jazzed because i think it's a brilliant trilogy <laughs> and it's funny because i've had yeah, a couple of yeah. girlfriends who like i'll show like i really love these movies i'll show them the preview and they're like absolutely not i do not want to watch that and Never fails. By the time you get halfway through the first movie, and this movie is one of the most violent, <laughs> bloody, just gory. My wife hates violence and on movies specifically, and yeah. she loves John Wick. Really? And it's every crazy. woman that I've showed it to, halfway through the first movie, they're like, "We're binging all three tonight. I'm watching this." <laughs> wow. And so there's something about that movie where they got someone who would normally be in the not my thing and I don't like it hmm. quadrant to like. Yes, let's go. I want to be here. I didn't know, yeah. you know. Like my wife hides her eyes. Like if someone's like fighting, boxing, or anything, <laughs> and with John Wick, she just watches the whole thing. It's really quite a moment. I, yeah. I would love to be able to name like what that is about that hmm. series, or is it just anecdotal and we just know a few people <laughs> that this happens? So. <clears throat> I, I mean, I can, I can give you a theory, okay. a hypothesis I that I have. <laughs> It's very simple, and I haven't okay. thought, thought through it too much. Okay. But I think the simple premise of that movie is he was a bad guy trying to live a good life, hmm. and he got he fell in love and found a woman, and then the woman died, so he experienced this loss, and then posthumously she gives him a puppy. Hmm. That's the point. <laughs> a puppy <laughs> enters the picture, and then the bad guys in the film kill that puppy. Oh. <laughs> And now any woman will watch six hours of John Wick extracting revenge for this cute-ass puppy. It's like the opposite of uh, that screenwriting book, Save the Cat, because, you know, they like talk about how the, the way that in the to make audiences really empathize with your lead character, you have to have them doing something heroic, in, like saving a cat that was about mm-hmm. that was stuck in a tree or something like that. So it's just like the opposite. Like, just kill the dog. <laughs> it's a different formula, I guess. I don't know. I, He's I, also unwilling participant in it all. He's like, I want out. Yeah. True. And he can't get out. And he's but I don't think to... that's the thing that gets yeah. women. I, I I think my analysis is far too shallow to explain the, the anomaly. <laughs> in the, I think I we need a woman that. in the room to help us yeah. with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll ask Allison. <laughs> okay. So follow-up question on, like, we're talking about AI. We're talking about art. And I have a question about the possibility of AI making art. And it's kind of clearly already happening. Like, you can have an AI make you a song. You can have an AI paint you a picture. 
And I wonder what you guys think. Is the output of that art? <clears throat> Can it be said that it's art? Can it be said that it's creative? What do you think? <laughs> um, this is funny because this is a this is a conversation I've had many times, and it's 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 something that I, I think most people will kind of tend towards a subjective aspect of you know if you think it's art, art's whatever you think is art, and I kind of agree with that on a on a shallow level. Like yes, if you think it's art, it's art, uh, and then. Once you get out of that realm, I think then it becomes really difficult to talk about. Because I don't think art, there's there's maybe, there's kind of like temporary art and then there's sort of generational art. Something that has last throughout, that is not just pertinent to this 10-year mo- moment or 5-year moment or 2-year moment. Because mm-hmm. something might be considered amazing, but only has like a 3-month lifespan before it doesn't yeah you know you think about whenever a perspective came into painting we were talking about earlier you know Raphael's painting it's not a great painting it's kind of a piece of shit but at the time in the context it's it's amazing it's actually phenomenal you mm-hmm. know uh, so so there's a there's a lot of context that 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 happens I think we also go back to the idea we were talking about earlier as far as the relational aspect and the fallibility and imperfection where you know I think I think AI can produce art. Uh, the connection to it might be a lot more singular than art that's relational, that's that's of from, of and from somebody, and communicating something that is from their life or their mm-hmm. their their experience. And I don't I don't I don't really believe that AI can get there. If it is, it'll, it'll be something different. Always something different from the human. Um, but is it art? I think it's just that's just too broad of a of a of a of a idea. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> too broad. Like yeah, what, is, what might, is what is art? Like it, it might be one of those <laughs> questions where the answer <laughs> hides behind a grand symbol that does become too broad. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like trying to have a conversation about what heaven is. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you're talking about everything. It's too yeah. existential. Like I don't art, know. Art but is everything. Or I my, am really curious <laughs> about this question. Yeah. So like you're, you're proposing in your answer, at least in part of your answer, mm-hmm. that art is whatever someone likes. Mm-hmm. And there is art, for example, that lives in the Louvre or in the MoMA that everyone likes mm-hmm. right or at least like the most people like mm-hmm. and that level of art is like some of the highest valued objects on earth it's mm-hmm. like clearly that's art whatever mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. but I, there's something in me that wants to reject that definition of art it's something someone likes so well i, I would say like but I, but I was agreeing with you until uh, there's something that there's a there, there there's some sort of relation relationship with um, it's communicating something to you, and I think that's more of like liking it. Okay, it's, that's it's, it's a surface part of that. Like, oh, I like that. It's like, well, why do you like that? <laughs> well, it's communicating something to me. So here's a th- here's a thought experiment. Like, if I play you a song, a recording of a song, and then I ask you if you like it. Maybe I don't even ask you. You just feel something. You're like, wow, that was really good. Mm -hmm. And I say, yeah, I generated that with an AI. 
what would you feel at that point? Would you feel? I don't know. I mean, I think it, I think what what I was getting from your answer was a little bit like sometimes it's the value of a piece has. It depends on. There's a lot of factors that play into the value of a piece, and you know, aesthetic beauty is one value to a piece, but it could also be the story behind it or the moment or the commentary, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's like the historical context, you know, like if you were, um, I don't know why this is kind of a morbid uh, image that's coming to my head right now, but like, say you were a, um, say you played me this song and you said, well, it's made by AI. And then suddenly I'm like less impressed. But Mm -hmm. then you said it was made by a guy that was, um, you know those mountain climbers that go up these big walls and they camp on the side of the wall Mm -hmm. and then he was like you know it was he was just making a thing on his phone before he fell to his death Uh, good point you know what I mean like there's Mm. some sort of there's some sort of context to this piece that suddenly gives it value Mm. it's more about the the aesthetic kind of product is is only one layer to the value of a thing I guess you know definitely well and that's back to the idea of context Mm. and like so my alternate thought hypothesis is, or thought experiment is, let's say you're walking down the street and there's a, a small little gallery and there's people in there looking at pieces on the wall and you walk in and you're like, wow, this is really cool stuff. Who's the artist? Oh, AI did this. And I think I immediately I would be like, start questioning what I thought about what was on the walls. Mm-hmm. And then the follow-up would be, okay, well, what prompted AI to make these? Mm-hmm. You know, what was, what's the idea behind it. What's the genre they're communicating? Which immediately puts the art in the mind of a person rather than in the AI. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so like Tommy Caldwell hanging on the side of the Dawn Wall in Yosemite typing into his phone some prompt that generates a song. Mm-hmm. Now that's to me where Fall, the meaning Falling for you. Falling for you. <laughs> <laughs> <God>. Nice. <laughs> Famous last words. Right. <laughs> um, that becomes the value in the art. Right. Because you're right. Like, the aesthetics of it, whether that's visual or audio, is audio a word? Audio? Right word? I'll take it. Yeah. Um, I accept that in my dictionary. Scrabble does, okay. yeah. The aesthetics of something are, are only the entry point <clears throat> to whatever the art is. Mm-hmm. It's the story and the relationship that you... Cr- create both with the piece of art and with its creator that makes that gives the art the ultimate value right. well there's a there was a thing they did with payless open the shoe store in la mm-hmm. and all these people came in and these shoes were like 700 they had a new, name. They had a new came name. up with a name for it well, yeah do you remember what it was i forgot what it, it was, was. A, it was a play on payless i think yeah no, Payless did it themselves. I know they did. Oh, okay. I'm yeah, just saying the yeah. brand name that they opened the store oh, was yeah. like a pl- a play on Payless. Yeah, pay more. <laughs> <laughs> and then they they kind of re- like they're getting all these like critics to say all these wonderful things about these shoes and like oh wow these are so amazing and then they revealed it to them. They get they got to keep the shoes and they refunded the money at the end. Mm. But it's interesting because the context was oh it was like this is high high society shoes that are the best and the we- most well made. And so they're buying into the story and they're almost interacting with it as if it is. Yeah. But then when the truth comes out, it's sort of like you sort of sort of dump like that shoe loses its value. 
And so I think there's something too, is like if someone's pulling a prank on you and you know, this, this painting's worth $10 million. Well, mm-hmm. actually their kid painted it. You know, there's, there's, I think context and story has something to like the AI. It wasn't just that if it was the first AI, you know, paintings to be presented in a gallery, like that might be like the same thing with NFTs, you know, the first NFTs that came out, you know, they were going for millions of dollars and mm-hmm. now there's like, you know, but so that, many of them. It's so. not because they were really aesthetically <clears throat> no. interesting. It's just because of the context of what they are and what they represent. Yeah. It was Wall Street bets, GameStop. People thought they were buying into something that was going to make them rich. Yeah. And th- so the story makes it lose all its value. Whereas someone like Banksy is creating something where you might wonder why in the world would somebody pay that amount? I mean, it's kind of like the mm-hmm. example you gave of my kid draws a picture and I put it in a frame and I say this is now worth $20 million and I actually find someone to buy it. Yeah. Well, well now it actually is worth $20 million and now everyone's thinking why the hell did that person pay that? Mm-hmm. What, do, what do I not understand about him and what do I not understand about oh, the piece? I, I think an interesting way to talk about it is um, <clears throat> like m- you know, is the value of a piece based on market trends versus sort of the um, kind of purity of the intention? You know, like, I, I think that when you get into those big, um, whatever, $10 million items or whatever, big, you know, $90 million Jeff Koons sculptures and whatever, you know, it, it's like, from what I understand and what I, people have told me, it's like, I don't know. I don't. I, hopefully, the person it's like a that status bu- symbol or something. Like yeah, that. it's more. Mm-hmm. It's more. Hopefully, the people that bought those aren't listening to this podcast. But it seems like. The, I assure you, they aren't. <laughs> but it's more about bragging rights for having something that has a story to it that they don't necessarily care about. You know, it's more <coughs> of a. Um, it's a market trend. I guess I was having a conversation recently, and and this person I was talking to said that they, they're goal right now when it comes to sort of grappling with all this as an artist is to decommodify their passion projects, which, you know, I had to kind of sit with it and unpack that for a second. And it was like, basically, if you're making content based on market demand, market trends or commercial or advertising or whatever um, kind of demands, then those have to follow a certain set of rules, you know, ultimately appeasing the client appeasing whoever you're trying to sell it to. Mm-hmm. And if you're making if you're making something that uh, is a per- personal work that is meant for your enjoyment and for your it kind of goes back to what we were saying about like leaning on the AI for formulaic projects as opposed to doing things that are sort of celebrating you and mm-hmm. celebrating your instincts as opposed to sort of freaking out that you're not um you know um you don't know the formula well enough, you know. I think that's when people are first getting started in any medium. I think that there, they there's a there's several years probably of like anyhow you know they say you got to learn the rules before mm-hmm. you can break the rules. And I think that there's a there's this season of like you got to learn the rules and learn the formulas to know what why the formula is there and and what makes people what what is effective about the formula. But then try and repurpose that if you want to. Or not for your personal expression, you know, like, you know, it's just because you make something in your, in your basement and no one ever hears it, it might be, 
you know, in the big scheme of value, it could be very valuable to this person. This is like an artifact of this person's love and joy, you know. But <clears throat> when it comes to making something that's going to be commercially viable or, or attractive or suddenly be popular on a lot of markets, you know, then, right. it, you know, it, um, yeah. I don't want to. So, go so back. it sounds like true arts are just going to be poor all the time. Well, I, I, I do think that art, I mean, artists have always had to sort of um, da- do that weird dance between commerce and mm, with true. commerce, you know, and I think because you need to feed yourself and, and pay rent, but, and so you have to take jobs that are not always the most, um, your agenda, mm-hmm. you know, but what was the phrase that you said? trying to decommodify my passion projects, yeah. which is like, do you take from that to, for that? It means to pull myself out of the game of the formula, the game of the market, the game of the zeitgeist and see what's just in me. I think it's making, it's, um, learning boundaries, you know, in terms of what is mine and what is for, what is, um, meant to put food on the table and what is meant as a personal exploration, you know, if Mm -hmm. if it's like, uh, research, you know, you might be really into researching plants, you know, or researching how to have the most amazing garden, but you know, at the end of the season, they might not produce fruit or whatever, but you have like the richness is in the process of learning Mm -hmm. the depths of this thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that the richness of your life has to do more with those kind of explorations that are less like, well, I have to turn this into a business somehow, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, I I definitely want to apply and use my personally speaking, you know, my skills in storytelling and entertainment design in ways that can make me money and make, and, and, um, you know, afford me a, a life. But, uh, I think it's nice to, think that you can also carve out space to do stuff that's more about more about pure personal expression and without the pressure of market trends i guess can i, can I sideline us just for a second sure what, what is your relationship with money like how I, and the reason why i ask this is not I, good I, at I, it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no i mean in, in some respect I, I find that generally speaking that a lot of artists have sort of a kind of uh almost more of a hate relationship rather than a love hate relationship with money like Mm. that seems to be like money seems to uh squelch the the creative process Mm -hmm. and make a lot of artists feel dirty or Mm -hmm. something something along that line is that is that does that make sense like yeah that's kind of why i'm asking i'm curious like what's your well i am definitely having to re um build my relationship with money Hmm. and because i think but i do think that a lot of artists um they they're kind of like desperate for validation you know like am i good or not i think this is sort of a driving question for a lot of artists and and i think that that can only come from an external place you know like external validation and i think that a lot of artists get stuck in sort of a place maybe myself maybe i have gotten stuck in stuck in this place of like you know as opposed to being like i think this is good I I believe in it. I think uh, this is going to make your life better. I think you're going to enjoy this music, and I think that you should buy my record. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more of this, like, oh, if you think it's good, and maybe this comes back from being mm-hmm. a religious upbringing. But mm-hmm. you know, I think it's like if you think it's good, 
you know, put a love offering in the basket. <laughs> totally. Right. You know, and uh, I think that that donations is, accepted. Yeah, donations accepted, and I think that it's um, that translates to a tricky relationship with money because you feel like you're sort of not supposed to touch it because mm. it's meant to be more of a um, donation for your contributions or something. Mm-hmm. But I think that that doesn't have to be the case. Mm. Well, I also think it relates to a position that isn't compelling to people when it comes to art. Mm-hmm. Like if you can't tell me, Hey, I believe in this. This is really good. You should buy the record. Mm-hmm. If you say, you know, if you want to donate some money and take a record, that's fine. Yeah. It's like, if you're not telling me that you think it's good, then right. why should I think it's yeah. good? You know, like that it puts the artist in this position of timidity that mm-hmm. is not attractive. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, again, I think that this goes back I don't know if my personal journey with this has been in kind of trying to ride that, um, you know, make music that was um, going to help pay my bills that um, is really up to another person telling you if it's right or not. Hmm. You know, it's like the client. It's like, okay, and I think you just have to learn to have thick skin. And when you're working in that environment where you're kind of like, Okay, here's my first draft. If this works for your product or your narrative or whatever you're trying to do, uh, awesome. If you hear some changes, let me know. You know, like, um, and I can make those changes. I think that's like the healthy way to approach that kind of relationship. With it's you're not emotionally attached mm-hmm. to the work, but <clears throat> it, artists get really emotionally attached to their work, and it becomes a personal attack when anyone wants to make any changes to their ideas. You mm-hmm. know, and I think that I think that if you uh, carve out this space for yourself, then no one can attack it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you know? uh, and it's like, well, it might suck, but this was what I wanted to do that day. And but so... there's a conundrum in there. Like if you decommodify <laughs> your passions to where you have this place where you can't be attacked and you can just do whatever you want to do. Right. The reason you would want to do that is because it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. And then if it's worth doing, you're immediately going to want to tell someone about it because mm-hmm. I just did something that was worth doing, right? Yeah. And then now you've got to share it and you're back in the same conundrum. So I wonder if it's actually even productive to try and make that space of, produ- of protection hmm. or if it would be better to It's not that it has to be harder. private, you know. It could still be shared with people. Yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, that's okay. I, I just wonder if it would be better to work on your relationship with the outside world such that you can do your art <laughs> yeah. without having to like always confront that line between public and private mm-hmm. and the line between, well, now this is up for scrutiny and up for judgment, yeah. you know, because in reality it always is. And the worst judgment any piece of art ever receives is from the person who creates it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm. This is a topic that I've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about because it because I think that when you are primarily focused on you know when the when the pendulum or when the needle is pointing towards um, creative, I mean towards a, appeasing a client or like a professional sort of relationship, then I think that leads to burnout over the long course of time. Yeah. Whereas you get like a, a rush from doing something that feels like. It's almost like you're in class and you're working for the teacher and then you go in recess and you get to play kickball and do whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like the kickball kind of, um, uh, is, is sort of the energy. It's like where you build up your attention span again, you build up your, 
your energy, it, it replenishes you by going yeah. out and having this play. Right. And then it gives you enough sort of um, kind of like satisfies that itch so that you can go back and be present in these other situations and focus and use your time. Yeah. I think that's more of the relation, the, the balance. And I think that some people, you know, it's like a photographer who loved making really avant-garde random shots and then suddenly they were like you know how you can really make a living is doing weddings and then they start yeah. shooting weddings and then they never want to touch their camera again right and i think it's it's a that's sort of this like balance between doing it personal work versus client work i think that is sort of artists struggle with sometimes and try to make a try and find the right balance that works for them you know? i've heard that story so many times of photographers right yeah it's like yeah. here's an easy way to make money but you can make money doing up. your art yeah but the thing is, it's not doing your art. No, I mean, to some can make when it you're making though, yeah. something for a client that isn't your art, mm-hmm. you're you're performing a service. You're not making art, and and the output of that could be artistic. <clears throat> yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. But that would be emergent. That isn't the the contract. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, they're ultimately paying for you for your taste. Yes, but they're but only a slight amount. But of as your long taste. as it serves their needs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me, like, I haven't ever written for anybody else. I've never done any kind of commercial songwriting, Mm -hmm. but I've done 20 years worth of designing websites for other people. Mm. And there's almost nothing more demoralizing than presenting a creative design to a client. Because they're paying you for something, and all they have to say is what they would like to be different. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing worth saying. Right. Right. We're on the clock. Like, hey, this looks great. Here's everything I'd like to be different. And mm-hmm. the only thing to take away from that is this thing that you were trying to be artistic with, trying to slave over and, and pull nuances and balance mm-hmm. and all of this out into it, it all just got destroyed. Right. Yeah. And that tends to go badly over and over and over to where the end product that you end up delivering for good money you hate. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's, I think the artists are, are concerned with the nuances and the client is usually concerned with the broad strokes. Yeah, and, you know, totally. Sometimes the like painstaking detail that goes into it gets <laughs> overlooked and it feels really frustrating. There's a really famous story among graphic designers about when, so Steve Jobs, who obviously started Apple Computer, he got ousted by the board in like the late 80s or some early 90s or something. And he went and started a company, another computer company called Next Computing. And when he started it, he was like, I'm going to start with a good brand. And he hired this world famous brand designer. And he's like, I want you to brand it. And he said, this guy, forget the guy's name, uh, the brand designer. He said, okay, it'll be a hundred thousand dollars and you get one design. (laughs) And Steve Jobs was like, great. How many revisions? He goes, no, (laughs) one design. You pay me. I deliver. That's it. Hmm. No feedback, no alternatives. Right. No changes. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. You are paying me to do what I do, so trust what I do. And that's famous in the design community because it's like, who the hell has the balls to do that? <laughs> sure. You know? It's kind of like, uh, I would assume Tarantino or people like that have final cut, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not the it's not whoever is paying for the movie. It's the director. Yeah. They're, whatever the final cut is, is their stay. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but it seems but, like that's probably the way. In the, but in those situations, they've built up the credibility to say that. Yeah. Like they probably had to do the sludge and the slog through all the mm-hmm. other stuff. But There's a reason they're militant about it. <clears throat> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And they're like, no, I know my value. Mm-hmm. And if you're not willing to 
there's somebody else who's going to, mm-hmm. to, to pay for that value. But I think there is a certain amount that you have to sort of earn your stripes to kind of get to that place where you can say that, if that makes sense. I, I think it, it's a long, I think the integrated version of this is to, for creatives to learn to like really want to bridge that gap and have mm-hmm. that conversation with people who, you know, be interested in sort of like, all right, I know there's a language barrier here, but mm-hmm. we want to work together. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that is, seems to be like the next level for a lot of frustrated creatives. I think, you know, like, all right, how can you learn to speak some corporate and mm-hmm. they can learn to speak some creative or, you know. Well, well you see this in, uh, in architecture and building also mm-hmm. is these architects come up with these amazing designs right. and the builders are going, the fuck right. you can't do that like it, it, you can't float that there mm-hmm. and then they kind of they then they start creatively working together and the architect actually pushes the builder and the the builder pushes the architect mm-hmm. and somewhere in between there's 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 something that's kind of really amazing that kind of comes out in a healthy way or a healthy relationship so there is something that i think on the commercial aspect that you know, might push creatives in a way that actually proves their maybe more personal projects or like, I think that's kind of what you were, you were saying too. Yeah. So I think that's, we have to kind of open ourselves up to that sort of criticism and even making things we don't necessarily even want to make because mm-hmm. there's something about that broadening mm-hmm. our abilities. Well, that, yeah, I think the architect builder dichotomy is a really good example because it's like, ultimately there's ego and whose idea is getting worked on, mm, yeah, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that architects probably could have an ego of like, you know, well, this is my thing. Figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But a builder, that's not really a great way to big build a relationship with a builder, <laughs> you know? But when, especially when the builder's doing all the work mm-hmm. to carry it out, you know? <clears throat> um, that, that architect builder scenario gets me very excited. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I think like an architect setting a vision that seems impossible. I mean, another Steve Jobs story is when he opened the Apple store in New York, <clears throat> he wanted this glass cube on in Times <clears throat> Square. Mm-hmm. And he wanted it to be four by four glass panels. And it wasn't physically possible with the current set state of glass manufacturing to make glass panels that big. And he was kind of like, yeah, I don't accept that answer. And he went and started pushing people and mm-hmm. someone figured out a new manufacturing process to create the panels and they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and that's so inspiring yeah. both on his part and on the part of the people who figured out how to do it. But that doesn't happen by mere persuasion or by mere, uh, just sort of like heavy handed, you're going to do this. You know, the architect saying to the builder, you would figure it out and like mm-hmm. from the ego perspective, like you said, it doesn't happen that way. It won't. The only way for something like that to happen is for both parties, for both the architect and the builder or the client and the designer mm-hmm. or the client and the songwriter to have a shared vision. Yeah. And if you have that shared vision, then I don't have to persuade you and I don't have to heavy hand you. I can say, hey, we both agree we want to do something impossible. And I see a part of that that you don't, and you see a part that I don't. And let me help you see the part that I do. Mm-hmm. You help me see the part that I don't. And then we can actually, like, overcome what was thought impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there's got to be a generosity with the power 
you know, because I think if <clears throat> that ego, another way to talk about the ego thing is that, you know, uh, ultimately at the end of the day, I have the money, so you have to do what I say. Like, mm-hmm. it's almost like this way of saying like, right. I have the power in the situation, but it's more like, I think you have, it's rare to find groups of people and teams that are willing to sort of be, and, and I do think that, that this may be a generalization, but I think that corporate um, culture is more hierarchical than artistic culture. You know, I think that, you know, I have my experience in, especially as a musician who is not really tended to have a lot of, of a budget to pay all the time when I'm making records or going on tour or whatever. A lot of times what I've had to lean on is like, is like, uh, there's a equality here where this is why it's going to be fun. Like only get, only get involved with this project. If it sounds fun to you, mm-hmm. like kind of like inviting people to, to, um, you know, get involved if it inspires them, as opposed to say like, we're hiring you. You have to do what we say. Mm-hmm. It's like, this has to be a voluntary, yeah. voluntary kind of, um, collaboration. And I think that sometimes the, corporate culture seems and I don't know this is my own sort of little journey I guess but like in trying to interface with that culture it's more there's a lot more of a um, military type hierarchical kind of like dictatorship kind of setup where it's more like you have to answer to the person above you kind of thing and um, that sort of whole system is is the reason that artists chose to be artists so they can avoid that <laughs> well I, I love this whole part because you're starting to see even the uh tension between like liberals and conservatives mm-hmm. and openness and conscientiousness it's sort of like you have you need people that are open to new ideas and are exploring always but you also need people that are building systems mm-hmm. and hierarchies and ways to accomplish something time and time again so so like we can always deal with the the cliches where you know artists are flighty and they can never pin them down and like you you know what's our time frame here you know it's like oh whatever inspiration hits and Mm -hmm. you know it's like all the also the anecdotal cliches or whatever um but there's something like really beautiful when those two worlds kind of combine you know the liberal and conservative viewpoints Mm -hmm. and how they challenge each other and stretch each other as well as like maybe the artist and the corporate and and how that that should be that should be there because if not if you don't have that challenge one becomes too you know strict and authoritarian mm-hmm. and the other becomes too chaotic and and no purpose yeah, yeah no purpose yeah. and so uh, so it's it's interesting to, to find like I think that's something we're hitting on is where those two worlds are sort of meeting and how they interact mm-hmm. and and I think a lot of the question is is because like as you were mentioning the builder and architect part of that, I saw this this when the architect is like, "Well, just build it," you know. I saw I, in my head, I saw this builder go, "All right, fuck it, All right? Okay, let me think. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna work through this." So he's actually trying to like get into the space where he can make that happen and think of the possibilities where the architects being more the you know uh, the authoritarian in this in this situation, mm-hmm. but it usually has to like. One or the two or both kind of can get into that same space. Yeah. So like an architect, when the builder's like, oh, I'm not going to fucking do that. You know, ah. so the architect has to go, okay, how can I make this in a way that can communicate to him mm-hmm. this idea? And so they have to kind That's of, the vision. they have to kind of build it further, build it further out in order to bring <clears throat> the builder into this, into the story. Right. Yeah. So like on the artist side, you know, you're in corporate, you're dealing with corporate. It's like, it's like, okay, 
they're not seeing it. So how can I build this out further in order to bring them into that story and how I see this could be better? Yeah. That's good. That goes to what you were saying about communication. Mm. Well, it needs humility too. I think, Uh you know, like uh, my, my most experience I have in this scenario is like, I, I love trying to play all the different instruments, but I'm very much like, um, conversational on instruments as opposed to like some of these people that especially the guys that we know I mean you're an incredible guitar player but like my, my approach has been like always been like here's my shitty version can you like you see where I'm going with that <laughs> I love it yeah. yeah you know like can you just That's make great. that better yeah. like take it and run with it and I think that, that there's I've tried to be humble and be like and I want to get better and I want to get to the place where I can just shred myself but (laughs) ultimately i think if you have the whole like a a larger concept and you need to incorporate all these different people at their top of their game you know mm -hmm. you have to see like you can't be well i think there's something so beautiful about that like do you see what i'm getting at Mm -hmm. you're you're pointing at something above you and when you said you have to be humble that's what you're doing you're pointing to something outside of you Mm -hmm. and you're playing something and saying do you see what i'm getting at Mm -hmm. And then whether it's like Evan or Carl Miner or whoever, like they're like, oh, and they start with this like incredible proficiency and mastery fleshing it out. That's their area of expertise. Yeah. Mm. And I would actually like highly encourage you not to aspire to that. (laughs) To get any better. (laughs) Well, it's not that you shouldn't get any better, but I think think there's something about that's the best permission I've ever been granted. (laughs) I I just remember this uh, time when we were in college and I think I was hanging out with Griffin house was definitely there and playing guitar. Mm. And I think Ian Fitchick was there as well. Mm -hmm. And we all, or maybe Ian observed this and I just agreed, uh, that, there's a certain way that songwriters play guitar and it's, it's kind of a stupid way. Mm. They don't play guitar well, but it allows them to see chord changes and feel the way that a song is going that someone who's sitting there practicing scales for two hours a day mm-hmm. could never see because they're too much. They're too proficient. They're too to the finer detail to the finer. They're too tuned to the finer details. Mm-hmm. Yes. They can't see the macro. Right. The songwriter sees the macro. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I don't remember the way that discussion went. This was probably 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember feeling very disheartened mm-hmm. because I was a, I'm a guitar player. I was a, uh, guitar performance major. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to write songs. Mm -hmm. And I thought, shit, I'm not one or the other. (laughs) And it's kind of true. Like, I think I lack something that I see in you, for example. Like, Mm -hmm. you you have the ability to move around something that my mind goes into the very minute details of the way that a finger presses a string, Mm -hmm. you know, or like... I, I cut sections of time when I hear a song and I think about the way a particular note is attacked and decays mm-hmm. and I lose the song, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think if you want to, you have to kind of choose one or the other. You don't get to be all of it. It's hard to be all of it. I mean, yeah. I don't even know. If, Unless you're Prince. Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Unless you're Prince. Somehow he seemed to be able to do it all. I mean, I think, I, d- I definitely think my favorite... Um, that is my favorite thing about, especially about being, and I love being in Austin, but 
I haven't connected with, I haven't gotten the opportunity to play with as many musicians here as I did in Nashville and L.A. And there are so many incredible musicians in Nashville and L.A. that are just like, especially in Nashville, that are just so masters at their instrument, you know. And yeah. to, to be able to sort of come to these people who are just out of, you know, just incredible at their, at their instrument and be like... Um, what would you do here? You know, yeah. and a lot of times it's like it's better. Some people I think approach like I don't know. I just listened to that Rick Rubin um, book, you know, <clears throat> and sometimes the it's creative more, act. Yeah, and I, sometimes I think people are even more hands off, kind of being like, um, you know, we'll just do whatever comes to you, you know. But I tend to sort of like to try and scribble it out with a little more like you know rough sketch kind of thing, you know. Um, <clears throat> I, I was really inspired by that. Um, speaking of the architect uh, analogy, Frank, the Frank sketches of Frank Gehry. Did you ever see that movie? No. Mm-hmm. You know the architect Frank Gehry. He's this architect who designed like the Disney Concert Hall or the, some of these like incredible buildings that look like sails. They have all these really smooth surfaces on them and they're mm-hmm. really like flowing, whatever. And um, like. The Sydney Opera Hall might be... No, I don't remember. Anyway, he's just got all these incredible buildings that are just so very, like, fluid-looking, you know? Sounds like the Sydney Opera House is what you're describing. Yeah, it might yeah. be. It might be. I can't remember if that's his or not. But he... he if you, <laughs> They did this documentary on him because he would basically have an idea for a building, and he would sketch it on a napkin, and it would look like scribble. But then you would compare it to the final product, and it would look like the real building. Like someone drew a picture of the real building. It was like a scribble picture <laughs> of the real building. Yeah. This is like, you know, and I think, I, I don't know, I just, I'm like, that inspired me as a creator to be like, oh, you can have, you can have large ideas and mm. scribble them. And if you can find the right people to help believe in your idea and team up with you, then you can sort of go for those things. You yeah. know? It's more like the scribble approach than sort of being the person that knows how to actually put it together, you know? Right. But... You should watch that film. It's pretty cool. Say the name of it again. Frank Gehry, G-E-H-R-Y. Um, he's, uh, yeah, one of those, like, architect geniuses. And well, this is super fascinating because this also exists in the world of business. Because you, I mean, we've kind of talked about Steve Jobs, but, uh, so I'm a very broad thinker. And throughout Medici's history, it's like I've always kind of, like, people have kind of grown up with me or I've, I've helped them grow into their positions. Hmm. And, you know, over the years, I've actually been able to interact with more like business people that are like super skilled in their areas. And it's just super, it's super, I say super a lot of times. It's just really inspiring to see people that are excellent at certain, uh, like my, the architects who did our, uh, three store, three stores, like they pushed me in ways that I'd not, like, I'm not a modern person. But they pushed modern concepts into more of my traditional woods and hmm. homey feeling. And, and it was just really fun to see that, you know, and I, I had a COO uh, for, for a few years and somebody who I didn't have to, I could just say, hey, we need to make these things happen. And they were able to just to make it happen. Hmm. And they actually do it better than what I would even have yeah. had done myself, you know. Um, so I think that's that's something that happens you know, whether you're talking about business or, or, you know, music or, or any of that kind of stuff is finding that sort of team that can kind of excel. Like you have your broad visionary, you mm-hmm. know, and then you have your more skilled, proficient operations person or accounting or CFO. 
you know, I think when it works really in a, in a really healthy, good relationship, and it's not just, you know, pushing buttons or making people do things because mm-hmm. there's that, that's that sort of hierarchy corporation is, is stale and authoritarian. Right. But when you have people that are like, like get my director of retail operations, like he's really good with people and, you know, I'm okay with people, but like he really, he does, he does things that I, I just maybe don't have the patience for. Sure. And I, I just really appreciate that because he can communicate something that we're trying to, as a goal that we're heading towards in a way that's, helpful to get everybody on board. Mm-hmm. And I think you just need those types of people that are able to communicate in that way that maybe you might not be proficient. And, and again, kind of like Matt said to you, it's like, I hope you're never like that. You know, it's because you need to, you need to kind of stay in that space and mm-hmm. allow other people to kind of come alongside you. To be you. able to communicate the vision. Yeah. <clears throat> you were saying something earlier about sort of like the, the stodginess of the corporate hierarchy and how that's so hard to deal with. And it really is. And I thought, that's interesting because you earlier said this idea of like if you're recruiting people to play in a band or to play on a record, you, you might say something like, if you're interested, if it inspires you, I want, I want to make sure it's meaningful to you on something other than a monetary level. Mm-hmm. And that generally works pretty well for a group of five to, let's I don't know, eight people. Yeah. But I've also spent time playing in orchestras. And in an orchestra... It's very, it's military like. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about your goddamn feelings. <laughs> right. You know, you're divided up into groups based upon instrument, and then there's first chair, second chair, and then there's everybody after that, and then everybody is subject to the conductor. And what the fuck does that person do? Mm-hmm. You know, just waves a stick around. No, but it, that's not true. It's not just that. There's, when you get a larger group of people mm-hmm. that are involved in something, it requires it. It requires that structure and it requires somebody at the top of that structure who simply points everyone to the vision. And to the extent that the conductor of an orchestra is a tyrant and just yells at people to Mm -hmm. tell them what to do, they're a shitty conductor. Mm. But a conductor that was like we talked about earlier, who says the rest notes are not when you sit out, you play those just like every other note. Mm -hmm. That that's a conductor who's pointing to a vision that's above himself or herself and mm-hmm. saying, we're all here for a reason. It's bigger than all of us. I'm going to remind you of that, but there's too many of you for me to remind all of you of that. So I'm going to remind you of that. And every first chair in every section, say, yeah. you're going to enforce that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every second chair in every section, you're going to support the first chair in, mm-hmm. in enforcing it's very that. military. It's borrowed from the military system, I think, but it's, it's for a reason. I think it works. Well, I, I think it's emergent of large groups of people. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you want to do something well, like yeah. which an orchestra does, like an orchestra wants to perform something precise. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do something mm-hmm. precise with a hundred people, mm-hmm. it has to be that way. Yeah. Just like if you want to win a war with a military, they have to be precise. <laughs> and so you have to be I serious. I feel like a butterfly. You're like, no, you yeah. don't. You feel like a soldier. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah. going that direction. <laughs> All right. If I can indulge you guys with a childhood story of mine, I feel Let like go. Um, yeah. I I had two band directors when I was in middle school and high school, and um, and they both had a big impact on my love of music. But my middle school band director was this guy who was a just a um, how can I put it like. Um, he was just he he was all uh, he just wanted to play. He just wanted to make sure everyone knew that it was fun. 
Like, and he had learned some really impressive stuff on all the instruments. So he would pull he would pull out basically on the first day of class in the sixth grade, he pulled out a trumpet and he was just doing like he was like doing this like conquistadore kind of thing, you know. And then he would pull out a trombone and he would do this whole New Orleans thing. And then he would pull out a sax and he would make it sound like a I don't know, um a careless whisper or something, you know. Kenny G. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh he just went down the line and everyone it was at the end of the class, the whole class was cheering. We were just like it was his performance for these kids. It was like a kid's show basically where he was just so good and he's like, you know, choose which one you like based on which one sounds most fun, you know? And and our my entire experience in middle school was middle school band was that <clears throat> he would also pull capers like we had like um, the big concert for the parents and we would be playing uh, Jurassic Park and basically there was this one section where there was a long series of rests for the trumpets and he was like all right listen trumpets come here what we're gonna do is at the concert. You're going to sneak out of the back of the high school gym and you're going to crawl down on the floor with your trumpets and you're going to sneak out the back hallway and come all run around the back of the, the gym and come right behind your parents' heads with your trumpets. And as soon as whenever that rest is over and it's time for you to make your entrance back in, you want you to point them right at your parents, the back of your parents' heads. <laughs> and it was like, we were like, this guy is crazy. I mean, you just sort of like... It instilled this wild love mm. of music, you know, mm. and also like um, soloing or playing out. You just played like with a lot of heart. Well, I moved schools to um, from North Carolina to Virginia, and the band director at the school I went to was the strictest person I'd ever been around in my life, and was so, um, you know, so such a taskmaster, like you're talking about, of a, of a conductor, and. And a, a lot of the students, I felt like, were like afraid to sort of play out. And I ended up getting a lot of the solos, but it, I, I think it wasn't necessarily because I was a better um, trumpet player than like the next guy, but I played out because of the... Mm. You performed. You learned to perform. I learned to sort of like embody and sort of feel yeah. the music, you know? And, and so I could sort of play it in an emotional way that people would connect with. And then... But... That, you know, we ended up, that band, that high school band ended up going on to like win a bunch of these like state competitions and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was only, be, you couldn't, I don't think you can have both. It's like if you, if your point is to win these competitions, you got to have this strict thing. But like, it's, I don't know, for me, when you talk about that sort of balance between the rigor and, you know, I also heard this story about how Liz Lambert here in Austin was building her first hotel. Uh, I think this was on like the Tim Ferriss show or something and how she um, was maybe working on the Austin hotel, Austin motel. Yeah. And um, how she hired a bunch of musicians to, because she wanted to help support these creatives, you know, and she hired these musicians to come and do be like the wait the, um, you know, turn over the rooms and do the uh, hospitality kind of, um, what oh, that call? sounds like a terrible idea. And they, she said that they all started crying, and she had to fire them all because yeah. they would just break down in tears <laughs> because they couldn't handle the rigor of what it took to of bring that idea not. off the ground. You know, I, I think I, you I know, love that she tried that idea. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's it's a it goes. I don't know. It feels in, on theme for what we're talking about here because I think that um, and I, I got to experience some of this in the past couple of years. Like when um, you know, it can't just all be like um, group hugs and butterflies if you want to yeah. get something done you know you gotta have a well i love that with the analogy of music in particular because music isn't fun 
and it isn't hard. Music isn't fun? Well, it's both. <laughs> the thing is, it's something yeah. above both of those things yeah, that no, incorporates right. both of them. Right. It's transcendent. Yeah. So it's fun a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. It's also incredibly difficult a lot of the times. And to the extent that you don't incorporate those two things together, mm-hmm. it isn't what it could be. And so, you know, the, your first band director who instilled the love of it yeah. wasn't winning competitions. Sure. But the guy who was winning competitions was missing out on what makes music worth I'm, doing in the first place. Sure. You know, and it's I not later, about competitions. I later realized he had the same passion as the first guy. Yeah. But he had a different kind of rigor to get there. And, yeah. You know, and I, I, I definitely... Yeah. But I, and there's something to learn from both, mm-hmm. which yeah. is, I think, what I'm trying to say is that. Well, yeah. You, there is something to learn with, from both, and you should learn both. Mm-hmm. And actually, you, maybe you're a more blessed person than someone who hasn't had one of each of those mm-hmm. kinds of people. Mm-hmm. You know, the person to show you the extent of the fun side and the person to show you the extent of the discipline side. Sure. Like, it makes me think of that movie. Um, oh, shoot. With the drummer in uh, J.R. Mm-hmm. Simmons. Yeah. What was that called? What, uh, what, 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 starts with a W. Whiplash. Whiplash, yeah. Yeah. Like he was a tyrant. Right. But by the end of the movie, you kind of saw the love in it. You saw that he was loving him because he was a, he was a free-going, follow-my-impulse creativity, and he recognized that what that kid needed was extreme discipline mm-hmm. and then if he could accept the extreme discipline all of a sudden his creativity would emerge more beautifully and more perfectly and <clears throat> i love that movie because it was also so triggering of like right <laughs> my time at music school i think it's important to learn those two sides i mean i don't know this may be an attempt to bring it all the way back to our ai formulaic conversation but it's like it takes a long time to i think when i think about my early draw to music and just the wildness it didn't there was no structure involved you know i just wanted to be part of just like oh that sounds cool played over and over and over again (laughs) and i think that in order to uh you know refine what you do and and sort of improve as an editor you know i think the creative process is there's two sides to it there's the kid at play and then there's the editor you know that sort of is like that's not good that's not good we can keep that we can keep that but you know you can't you have to be able to switch back and forth a little bit i think in order to do something worthwhile creatively because you have to be able to be honest with yourself of whether one of your ideas is bad or not Hmm. but you have but it's good to but you can't always be the editor because then you're not playing enough. You're mm-hmm. not you're not generating new ideas anymore. You're like only becoming a critic. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I think that's a really important point of maturity in an artist when you can say, "I'm creating right now. I'm not going to be judge, editor." Yeah. And then later on, okay, now I'm editor. The creative has to submit. That's tough. You know. Yeah. And listen to me, and then. Yeah, you have to. You really do have to like switch back and forth between two. It's also roles. good to find other people that can play the role of editor for a while, just so yeah. you, to help mm. you define, develop your taste, to stay in the creative space longer. And also because you don't know what's good or not for a long time. Yeah, you kind of need like that's why, and I think a lot of people sort of prey on this 
it's like the American Idol phenomenon ultimately, but it's like needing an expert to tell you if you're good or not. You know, you, you do need people that are experts to help you understand why something is good and why something is bad sometimes. Or, you know, mm-hmm. if you're really hungry to grow, then you need people to give you fee- honest feedback. Yeah. But I think if you're interested in um, really getting, you know, if you're a journeyman or whatever you want to call it, you know, then you're going to go the long haul and you're not going to worry about, you're like, okay, beat me up, tell me something that's going to hurt my feelings, let me uh, deal with that and swallow it for a little bit and sit with it, and now I'll never make that mistake again. Yeah. And then you keep going, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a level of sort of, and maybe you have to be a person that um, craves critique to go down that line. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a good thing or not. But I do think it. Other, you, you have to borrow from people with good taste before you know what good taste is, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I would restate that by saying... <laughs> make that better, please. You have to... <laughs> this is what I do on ChatGPT, by the way. I like write an email and I'm like, make, make that, that better. better. <laughs> <laughs> well, soon coming to song a, a song near you. <laughs> I think you have to first know what you like. Mm-hmm. I really like... By the way, can I... I just want to interrupt this one thing because I think one of the, my favorite parts of one of the podcasts that you you guys have done is when you talked about this moment where your, I think you said your mom recognized something that you liked Mm. and she, um, like didn't force you to like that. It was a recognition of like, it seems like you're drawn to this. Yeah. I think that was really beautiful. I'm Mm. really glad you you told that story because it was like, I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's, we are drawn to things, you know? Mm. I mean, yeah, naturally. And it is a really beautiful story. And the fact that I, that my mother like would point that out, that was a, that's a gift right? that I don't know how to quantify because I don't think you know what you like. Mm-hmm. I think it's more often to an, a, an astute loving observer. It's more obvious to them than it is to you because mm-hmm. you don't know that you're liking something. And so for my mom to say, Hey, I noticed you like this. Mm-hmm. My response to that was like, did I, I don't know. Right. And then I listened and I was like. Actually, I, th- I think you're right. I think I do like this. And then the, the follow-up question is, what else do I like that I don't know about yeah, that I like? That's really affirming. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. And so I think your point about submitting yourself to someone to help you, part of that is you have to discover what you like before you can possibly say what it is that you like, which is the same thing as saying before you can have your own voice, hmm. before you can make your art in your voice. Mm-hmm. You have to discover what you like. And that's a relational project. That's not, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. You don't just do it on your own. Yeah. I like that. I, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I was just, uh, I was just like, uh, <clears throat> no, go, go, if you had something, go ahead. I don't know. I, I, um, I kept coming back. I heard this story about the um, whirling dervishes. Do you ever heard mm-hmm. about the whirling dervishes? Yeah. And they're, you know, in Sufi culture, the guys who would get in the middle of town and just start dancing. Mm. And if they were really into it, people would start dancing along. Mm-hmm. But they could tell if they were really into it or not. And I think that that feels kind of like, a, I don't know, a nice sort of like... Um, Thing to go after, I guess. You know, when you're finding the stuff that really moves you, hmm. then I think people are 
and and you allow yourself to be moved by it, then hmm. people can't help but be inspired by that, and they want to join in. I think. As long as you have enough self awareness to mediate the private from the public. What do you mean? Well, there's plenty of people on the streets who are homeless who are definitely feeling something, right? And people aren't joining in, yeah, because they are not aware of the social interaction. Mm. So, I think, did you ever watch um, Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk, "Your Inner Creative Genius"? Mm. Maybe I can't remember. And she talks about uh, the word "olay," meaning "God be with you," or "God is with you." I'm looking to you, like, for help. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? I don't know. Okay. God's with you, obviously. <laughs> I'm just looking to you for help. She's talking about performers, apparently, in, like, old Mexican culture mm-hmm. or even previous to Mexican culture in the uh, South Americas. Um, dancers would perform, and it would be so transcendent right. that people would stand up and cheer, ole, mm. like, God is with you. Like, mm. there's something transcendent. There's, I'm with you you're with him or there's some connection that's happening. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like what you were describing with the whirling dervishes. Mm -hmm. And there's a distinct difference between that and the guy on the street. Yeah. Who's screaming about something that you have no connection to. And this kind of goes back to the idea of you have to understand the rules and then break the rules, understand Mm -hmm. the genre, play by the rules, subvert the genre. There's something that trends, that transcends, but you first have to have connection Mm -hmm. and then transcendence. You can't go straight transcendence. That's just the madman on the street. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it has to be something that people recognize as, um, true and universal. You know, like I think if you see the madman on the street, you're like, something about his dance makes me not want to (laughs) dance. You yeah, know, but if you see somebody that seems like a sane person, maybe they lost a family member and or whatever, you know, like something that feels like you can tell they're truly feeling like it's a, there's a grief moment or something, you know, you're you're drawn into that. I think that maybe that goes back to the AI thing about like, you know, creating these moments or the, like I think the humans have this kind of Hawkeye or uh, you know, um, sixth sense for authenticity and for mm. true. Um, presence you know and when they feel like they know when a person's really in it and they that's why you cry at movies you know when a person recognize that you recognize that people recognize yeah they know yeah i can't i can't bring this up right now because i forgot the guy's name but i will put it in the show notes because i'll look it up afterwards but there's this guy i think he was an australian guy who danced he was like in such a bad place he hurt himself and uh he just started dancing and it just brought so much joy to people. He was on like a, you know, British Got Talent or Australians Got Talent or something mm. like that. And every time I play that song that that he danced to, I just I feel it because he communicates something through his dance. And it, you could almost say it wasn't that good, mm. but what he was communicating was so powerful and so strong. Even before you heard the story, that when you heard the story, you're like, oh. I already knew it. I saw it in the way that you yeah. you did that. So it was uh, communicated without language. Without language, so true, and, true embodiment. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I go back and watch this. You know, at least like once a year. I mean, it's just something that is just so, mm-hmm. uh, uh, just truly inspiring. Yeah. So, but so that's like I kind of get what you're saying. I think my, you know, one of the things I I have 
love about, um, I'm not sure if I'm good at this when I'm the person behind the microphone in the studio, but when I've gotten to produce other people and to sort of like, I think the role of the producer is to try and bring out the most embodied performance that you can from a performer, from a, from a musician or whatever. Like, because, and I think that that's what you're, you're just tuned in waiting for something where there's like a tinge of real, yeah. you know, um, authenticity and embodiment. And, you know, I think God, I listen to Ruth Franklin and some of that stuff. I'm just like, it, I start crying. I mean, I can't, <laughs> there, I remember there's this one performance of Aretha Franklin where she's singing at the, um, like, I think it's like Michelle Obama's birthday party or something mm-hmm. at the white house. And she goes into, um, uh, what's it called ain't no man uh, uh, love the way that I love you what's that song you know I'm talking about that Aretha Franklin Uh, um, I just had three songs flip through my head uh, at last I know exactly what you're talking about I'm horrible at at reenacting songs so he really is love (laughs) the man the way that I I love you that song Uh anyway she goes into this moment of like kind of just guttural like Mm. moaning and Mm. it just kills me every time I don't Mm. know why but I just feel like some some of those women and some of those singers are like so in touch with real embodiment that Mm. like when they just hit those spots it's it's not about being on pitch or whatever it's not the words it's primal primal and people just like it hits I mean it just like knocks them down yeah which like that's an example of something that isn't it's like outside of the senses so i mm-hmm. back to ai i don't know that ai can replicate mm. something like that because you know ai can replicate the five senses and the five senses is even a myth we have more than five but mm. you know however many there are whatever it is that aretha does is supersedes mm. that set of senses yeah, yeah. it's something else mm. Yeah, it's it's the pain, it's the memory, yeah. it's all the extra content that's going into it. Right. I don't know if this is true, but I have heard that um, that analog recording, you know, when you're uh, recording to analog tape through magnetic recording mm-hmm. uh, methods or whatever, that you that there's all this extra headroom in terms of some, like the like uh, frequency wise that it goes a lot higher than it does in digital, and digital hmm. is starting to slowly catch up with where analog hmm. has gotten to. I understood the opposite. Really? Yeah. I, for some reason, I th- I understood it to be like there's all this extra high-end information that's available on analog recordings that is has been slowly chased after with digital as digital has improved because digital has gone from for 44.1 to 48 to 96 yeah, yeah. to 128 or whatever, and it's getting higher and higher in terms of its um, what it's able to collect. But I, there's, I don't know, I, this has zero uh, scientific um, basis, <laughs> but I like to believe that all that informational, inf- that, that emotional information is way up there in those, mm. in those higher mm. frequencies and that, you know, it's harder to capture it with the digital stuff. I don't know. Maybe uh, I'm just an analog lover. Well, I'm also an analog lover and I don't want to destroy your <laughs> okay, idea me wrong, there. But me wrong. <laughs> my understanding is that digital can actually capture more of the extremes because there isn't a physical limit on the extremes. Digital is only capturing numbers. Whereas what you can put onto a tape isn't a number. It's an actual real-time analog electromagnetic magnetic recording of something. Mm-hmm. But there's limits to the extremes of the... Frequency. Fre- of, well, not frequency, but the 
the extremes of the electromagnetic signal hmm. that a tape can v- reliably record. Hmm. Well, so I don't really know. You might, I'm sure. <laughs> my understanding is that analog always has less of a spectrum. Really? I mean, I know that that's how it, it always it, has more emotion. Right. Because anything digital is always played back like connect the dots. Right. Analog is played back. In continuity. Or in con- full continuity. Yes, with full yeah. continuity. I mean, I, I know that the, the, the um, speakers that sort of reprodu- have historically been able to reproduce the analog stuff have been limited on their ranges. That's why, like, all your old records sound so mid-rangey or whatever. You know, actually, when I got my RV, I was... I tried listening. I started collecting CDs again because mm-hmm. I had a CD player in my RV, and I started. I tried to play like some random stuff. I like found Alanis Morissette at a at a thrift store one day and put it. Jagged in. Little Pill. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, these are great songs, but it's not translating on my RV trip right now. I put in like Neil Young or like some old blues stuff from the '40s or whatever. When back when the recordings were being broadcast through these tiny speakers that really had a mm-hmm. limited range of. of mm-hmm. um, you know, like more like the range. speakers in your RV. Yeah, yeah, and it sounded great. And I just was like, "Oh man, this is it." This is like, and I started even listening to like old Orson Welles radio show kind of stuff, and it was mm-hmm. just like this because like that was it sounded better. Yeah, I don't know, but for some reason I don't know where that sort of cross, you know, uh, is the the intersection between what analog recording is capable of capturing versus what the speakers are ready to produce you know yeah i i mean i don't i don't fully want to follow this trail because i think we should wrap this up but i think it's a fascinating topic (laughs) because (laughs) at at a certain point there was kind of one kind of speaker that you could expect someone to have in their in their home and so you would mix audio for that kind of speaker Mm -hmm. but now you're going to listen to stuff on your old shitty car or your mm-hmm. RV. Really, headphones. On on your headphones, mm-hmm. on your iPhone speaker, on your AirPods, on your display monitor. It's like, how in the world do you mix for that? Yeah. You know, and right. what what is the right way t- that it sounds? Yeah. Right you know? now, I think it's AirPods. That's the what we would... The standard. Are mixing for? I think that well, that's yeah. what the standard is right now. Yeah. I'll do. Okay. Yeah. This, this has been a fun on. conversation. This has been really, yeah. It's been good. Wait, are we done? <laughs> We're like I think two we hours should be. In. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I can keep going. <laughs> unless you <laughs> want to get into the effects of now, it's also recording reels and TikToks on. No, let's wrap it up. I think this has been great. Yeah. Um, let's leave it here. Yeah. Thanks for coming out to the shores. Thank Andy, you so thank much you. for having me. Andy, this was awesome. Yeah. Love you, brother. Thank you. Thanks Pleasure. for being here. Yeah, man. Cheers. Ciao. Cheers. I just said cheers and ciao at the same time. Ciao's. Ciao's. <laughs> ciao's. <laughs> gotta go look up there. Answer that question. Man. That was good, man. That was fun. I feel like I'm really good at um, pontificating about things I don't really know much about. Hey, that's what we do every Wednesday.